The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we sing just now about how our souls are satisfied in you alone. And we say that as a declaration, but I want to lift it as a request. Would you help our souls to be satisfied in you alone? All of us always. You're the one satisfaction that never ends, that is filling, that is eternal, that is, that is enough. So please cause us to be satisfied in you. We need that always, and we need it in particular right now. As we look at a passage this morning that's, uh, no two ways around it, it's challenging. And I pray that you would help us to hear it well, to think about it carefully, to speak about it carefully, but to, but to approach it from a spot of satisfaction, from a spot of rest and fullness, because our souls are satisfied in you alone. Give us that grace and help us to hear your word and follow it for our good and for your glory. Please do that this morning. Amen. Well, it's nice to see everyone here this morning, especially women. <laughs> more than once, more than once this week, I had a woman approach me and say, I think I'm going to be busy this coming week. <laughs> I've, just this week, I'm going to be busy. Said jokingly, of course. But that joke that I heard several times, honestly, acknowledges something we all feel a little bit of when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3. This could be uncomfortable. Could be. Over the past two weeks, we've been working through different realms of human life within which all of us exist and within which we all need to figure out how to submit to certain ones who are in authority over us there in that place. First, Big picture, be subject to government, kind of, you know, the, the authorities in the government that are all around us. Then last week, a little more narrow, more personal, the workplace. More challenging because unlike with the government, in the workplace, the supervisor, the boss, the manager team, whatever, they're, they're going to be making decisions that are with me or you in view in particular. So it gets more personal. More, more difficult, harder. And now this morning, harder still. Because it becomes more personal and more intimate. We come to the home, to marriage. Where, as we'll see in the first six verses of chapter 3 here, wives are called to be subject to the established authority there, to their husbands. This is about how to be under that close, personal authority. And you can see why somebody might joke about missing this week. Now, husbands might want to miss next week. <laughs> we talk about verse 7, the, the matching verse, if you will, the section in this, the verse in this section that's addressed to husbands, which is shorter and which is different in emphasis, but is not less convicting when you understand it properly. That's next week, though. This week is verses 1 to 6, focusing on wives, teaching, commanding, promising, various things that are completely out of step 
with modern American sensitivities that are completely out of step with modern American views and desires and perspectives. So much so that it's possible some listeners have tuned this out already. As soon as you heard the word submission, that's it. And that would be too bad. Because while God and God's eternal word does disagree with modern people and modern perspectives, he does so and then tells us so for our good. That's who he is. That's how he is, always. There's a lot of hope and promise here for women. For women. A lot of hope and promise in embracing what the God who loves us says and is teaching here in these verses. So we're going to look at it clearly and carefully and certainly not arrogantly. I hope it doesn't come off that way. So as to find what God offers to us here for our good and for his glory. And for the good of others who are watching. We're going to be looking at something that's, that's out of tune with the modern world and are going to wonder, where does that hope come from? That's where we're going this morning. Before I read the passage, though, and get into the details of it, there's something important that we need to face head-on here in order to read this properly and be able to think about hear it properly. I can joke about husbands wanting to miss next week, and, and numerous women can joke with me about wanting to miss this week. And I think that's helpful because we really can kind of keep this light, and it goes over better if we kind of approach it like that. But there is an ugly reality that some of us have lived in. And we know that. Maybe some even in this room. Some men, maybe your own husband, have perpetually skipped verse 7. On purpose. Pretending it does not exist. And then have taken verses 1 to 6, leaned into it hard, and used it against you. have used it as a justification to oppress and abuse and control. And then in a really nasty twist, have taken women who want to honor God and want to please God, have taken that desire to please God in a woman and use it as a trap against her, saying, and God supports me and tells you to take this. There's a word for that. Evil. The twisting of God's word to justify my own sin is evil. And knowing that at times such things can happen, it's not the norm. And so we're, we're not going to live at, at the somber, serious level in this. We're, we're going to address it straight up as Christians talking to Christians here. We're, we're, going to, we're going to be careful with this, but we're going to be okay with it. But knowing that sometimes that does happen, we need to remember that just like in all the other situations that we just looked at where there is authority to which we are to be subject, just like in all those other ones, God gives wives in marriage options for recourse when things go wrong. 
just like we saw the previous two weeks, it's here again. The Bible would allow even urge that sin be brought into the light. And where there's sin, sometimes we have to wrestle through, can I let love cover over that sin? And the things in this passage that we're going to look at are going to to call us to endure under sin. But sometimes, sometimes the most loving thing is to bring the sin out and to confront it. Sometimes. We're not called to be silent and to endure all sin. Some should be brought out. And some can involve calling the police. And some can involve divorce. Now, sorting out which sins, where, when, how, why, right here, right now, is going to be way too complicated, so I'm I'm not going to attempt to do that. But just hear this clearly. If your wife being sinned against, even in the call to be subject to your husband, even there, there is biblical recourse that you can take, and it might be confusing, and you might not be sure when and how and why. And in such a situation, please talk to somebody. Talk to the pastors of the church. Talk to me. Talk to one of our trained female counselors. We've got a number of trained female counselors who minister here in this church. You can get their contact information by calling the church office. You don't have to say why. Just ask for it. You might also, through the church office, get connected to a relatively new local ministry called Beauty from Ashes that's been started by a number of those very counselors out of this church that aims to help women in this spot who are in trouble or who don't know whether they're in trouble or what to do about that and just want to talk, that's great. Talk to somebody. And we all know that just short of evil, there's a bunch of steps short of that that are confusing, that are hard, that are are sorrowful, that are frustrating, and maybe you just want to talk about that. You don't have to be at the very end. You can be somewhere short of that. Call and talk to somebody. Men too. Don't wait until catastrophe to talk to somebody. Talk. That's what the church is for. That's what ministers are placed in the church for, is to help people deal with life and walk with God. So hear that. You have options for recourse. So knowing that, I'm going to set that aside. It's important to address that first so we can hear the rest of it because, of course, the sermon, the passage is not about the recourse. The recourse is the, is the off-ramp, is the exception. The passage is about how to live under authority, in this case, in marriage. So that's what we're going to talk about. But you've got to hear everything I say, keeping in mind there is an option for recourse. Maybe I need to talk to somebody about that, okay? What we're going to look at, though, is verses 1 to 6. How do I live in this marriage with the authority structure God has established for my good, for his honor, and for the good of those who are watching? That's where we're going this morning. So let me read verses 1 to 6 and then draw two observations. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise... Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verses 1 to 6. So two observations. Here's the first, pretty, pretty simple. God calls Christian wives to submit to their husbands. God calls Christian wives to submit to their husbands. Verse 1 begins, likewise. A word is often used in lists where there's something that's paired up or something that's related. It doesn't mean it's identical, just kind of connected. The, verse, the word shows up again in chapter 5 where Peter's going to talk to elders and likewise younger men. They're not the same, but they're connected. Well, here, likewise, another human institution, like mentioned up in verse 13, marriage, likewise. When we come to that, Wives, here's the command, be submissive. It's the exact same word that we've seen already in verses 13 and 18. It's again down in verse 5. Be subject. The word, as we've said, comes from this military background, and it's talking about looking around, figuring out who is in charge, and then properly lining up beneath or behind that one who is in charge. Be submissive, be subject to your own husbands. This is not about women in general and men in general. So a particular marriage, a wife and her husband. And it's about, as we've said before, obedience certainly to commands, instructions that are, that are given, as long as they're not commands to sin, obviously, and it's about attitude. And in this case, it's especially about attitude because in the day in, day out of, of a marriage, there's going to be far less what you might call like direct order than there would be like with government and the issuing of law or a boss at work and the assigning of a, of a task or a job. There's far less of that in marriage and there's far more of living with and relating and conversing and just kind of a general awareness about how one carries oneself, things that show attitude. So, yes, there's obedience to instruction, and that word is actually used down below. That's here. But the emphasis falls much more on attitude, on demeanor, as the following verses flesh out what that submission would look like. But before he gets to description... Peter gives us one statement about reason, and this is important. We're going we're to spend a little bit of time thinking about this because it's, it's, it's maybe something that's skipped, but it's vital. There is a, a vertical reason coming later, a, a reason that about you and God, but this is a horizontal reason about you and another person. And it's here right in the very beginning, right out of the gate in verse 1. Be subject to your husband so that reason, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. They may be one, drawn to the word of God, back to Christ, in other words. They may be one without a word, one by your conduct, not by your words. This is important to understand, and it's pretty challenging for some of us. 
This is the same general point already made in verse 12 and in verse 15 and implied in last week's section 2, the evangelistic power of a changed life. And we already talked about that in the previous settings. These are a changed life, not just words about a changed life. Real difference, real the unexpected, unnatural, something that somebody looks at and says, that is surprising. It's, it's not what I would think here. It's, it's very hard to be about, very hard to do. There's something there that's sacrificial and unnatural. That kind of a changed life lived out says far more than any words about a changed life would say. For everyone in all those previous contexts, and especially, especially right here in the husband-wife relationship, because it's so intimate. There's just something here about male and female relationship, about design of male and female that God is telling us here, and we have to recognize this applies to non-believing husbands. That's the main emphasis here. Those who do not, who, who specifically refuse to obey the word. They have heard it and they say, no. Well, stop talking, start living. He's heard it, he says, no, stop talking, live. And there's a lesson there too for Christian husbands, or at least professing Christian husbands, who in this moment are living in some way that is also saying no to God. Heard it, no better, and I'm saying no. I'm, 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 I'm veering away from God, and I know it. Stop talking, start living. That they might be one to God without a word. One by conduct, one by example, one by living around them. So you see the instruction there, and the reason... And right away, wives, if, if you're a wife, you have to ask yourself a basic question. And personally, I think this is the hardest part of the whole sermon. I think this is the hardest part. You have to ask yourself, am I here for this? What he just said. Am I in marriage for that plan that I might win him without a word? Or, I say this carefully, I'm not trying to be confrontational here, but this is the other option that I think we need to consider. Or have you bought the world's agenda, the world's message about why you're in marriage? that you're in marriage for your own rights and privileges. Your right to dignity, your right to be respected, to be understood, to be loved, to be protected, your privileges of benefit and pleasure, your right to justice, to be treated properly. Is that why you're here? Which is it? Because right out of the gate, this is why I think this is the hardest part. Right out of the gate, he hasn't even told us what submission means yet, what it looks like. That's the rest of the verses. And frankly, I think they're easier if you've first crossed this bridge. Right out of the gate, he has told us why these commands. For the sake of winning that man right there to God. God reigns 
And everywhere we are, you are there, you are with that one, you're right next to that guy, you're in that marriage, there you are, set free right there to live as his servant. Remember this from the previous passage, how God's grace has set us free not to live for ourselves, but to live as servants of God? That's all of us, men and women, married and single, husbands and wives, and here is the spot where he has put you and he set you free to live as his servant right there, to live for him, to die to self on behalf of his plan, perhaps endure hardship for verse 1. Just like employees in workplaces and citizens in countries, falsely accused and mistreated and made to suffer, treated like exiles and ostracized. We read all that and we all say, okay, that's going to be hard, but I will take that, that they may see my good deeds and glorify him on the day of visitation. That's verse 12. Okay, that's your plan, God. That's why I'm here. Okay. Likewise, that that man right there might see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. That that man right there who's veering away might be brought back and drawn to walk with God. Okay, here I am. Use me, Lord. I'm here as your servant. That's where all this starts, right out of the gate. Why are you in your marriage? First question. And if it's for that, then the rest of this is actually relatively easy. Not simple, but it's easy. Because just like with everything else, we say, I'll, I'll die to self for the sake of winning these. Here you are for the sake of winning him. Now, when enduring hardship, that sometimes becomes too much, and it's just wrong. And so I need to point back to the recourse thing I said earlier, right? Because if, if you're a little bit like me, you got this kind of hypersensitivity to something that's, that's hard, like I just said, and, and a hyper-diligence, and, and you really want to follow it. And so something in you might actually tempt you to say, like, that is strong, that verse one, I'm here for that, and I'm gonna endure everything far past what you should. I, I kinda of work this way, I'm like really easily like knocked off balance there. I, I heard somebody one time when I was younger in another state, I, I was, heard somebody teaching about money, about need to give our money to the Lord, and that week I got hung up in a drugstore about to buy a Snickers bar because the pastor's sermon was ringing my ears about sacrifice to give our money to the kingdom of God, and I couldn't buy the Snickers because I'm going to indulge myself with this expense. And I went back and talked to somebody else about it, key point, and he said, oh, Steve, that's not what I was talking about. Buy the candy bar, it's 65 cents. I'm talking about the guy who bought the yacht. There's a difference here. There's a difference here. Buy the candy bar and eat it to the glory of God and have fun with it. Good. But I'm hypersensitive like that sometimes, and maybe you are. And you just heard me say all this about endure hardship and die to self. 
Don't take that too far. And if you're not sure if you take it too far, talk to somebody. Put the recourse back in the table over here again. But all of us, it is really important that this is where this starts. We need to note it all starts out with a very different assumption from that of the world as to why you're in marriage. We start with an assumption that Christian wives aren't in marriage to live for themselves any more than Christian people are anywhere in the world to live for themselves. We are all always everywhere in the world to live for the glory of God, loving him and loving our neighbor, that they might be won by our conduct. Conduct, verse 2, that is respectful and pure. First thing he says about conduct is actually about attitude. A res- attitude of respect towards one husband that, that shows deference to him as, as the head. He, he's acknowledged that way. It's the very same thing that you show your, your boss at work, verse 18, all respect to the, to the boss at work. Same thing towards the husband, just to acknowledge you are the head of the home and I respect that in a way that, that you communicate and he hears. All respect and pure. Physically, sexually pure. Which communicates, I'm yours. And I'm not shopping around trying to attract the attention of others, let alone he actually engage with others. I'm yours, alone in every way which he can pick up from the attitude and he can pick up from the attire. Which leads right into verse 3 where there's another command about what Christian wives are to dress up in order to make beautiful and what they're not to do. Don't let your adorning be external, he says. We come to this and sometimes we kind of pause saying like, wait, are you saying, is he saying Don't let my adorning be external, like I can't braid my hair. Next phrase. That's crazy. That's not what he's saying. This passage does not prohibit braiding hair. It does not prohibit wearing gold. And it does not prohibit wearing clothes. (laughs) The third phrase clarifies, right? In fact, some translations have added in like, like special clothes or ostentatious clothes. It doesn't say that in the original language. It just says clothes because he's not prohibiting clothes and gold and braids. He's he's only prohibiting what is sometimes done with those things. Hair can be done up. Gold jewelry can be worn. Clothes can be put on, either in a way that aims at purity, that does not become one's focus, Or hair and jewelry and fashion can be used to focus on the external and to draw attention and to live for the external, to dress up the external so that what others see of you, what others think of you looking at the outside is what's most important and dictates how you feel, governs how you feel and how you act, and it's all about the external. And what you think then is most important about you is what's here on the outside. That becomes your focus This is not meant to be a discussion, and we're not going to go into a discussion about what proper modesty is. That's, it. That's not what this is about. 
what you should wear when and how. It's not saying that. So don't get hung up there. The, the point is, don't live for the external. Adorning that, dressing up that, especially not seductively, it's, it's wrong, and it's brutally self-destructive. God says, no, it's wrong, but it's brutally self-destructive because the external perishes. It's the flower of youth quickly fading and sagging and wrinkling. And it's just crushing to live for and find significance and spend time and money and effort trying to prop up that which is constantly perishing. Again, this is not a prohibition against braiding your hair and wearing nice clothes. It, it's, it's not about that. It's just it's about what, what the focus is on. And, and I think if we, we kind of process this, there's something that's tremendously freeing here. To, to get rid of that, not, not to stop braiding your hair and dressing nicely, but to stop focusing on that. And instead to think like, what I'm supposed to be about is that which never perishes, the internal. That's a command to freedom. The external perishes, but instead, verse 4, let your adorning be focused on the internal, on the inner person of the heart that you can't see with the physical eyes, but which shows up everywhere and you can very easily see. The part of you that can have an imperishable beauty if you spend time dressing up that part, adorning that part, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is a phrase that is incredibly cliche in Christian circles and probably fairly well and misunderstood. So let's hover on that for a second. I think this is on lots of plaques and lots of post-it notes and whatnot. It, it, it's, it's kind of this, this ideal of the woman who has a gentle and quiet spirit. And, and sometimes we, we look at a woman, maybe a woman looks at herself, a woman who is more naturally introverted or careful or reserved and thoughtful, etc., etc. You can look at that and say, like, man, she's godly. Well, maybe. Maybe that's just her personality, though. She was like that before she became a Christian. On the other hand, some women who are by nature a little more extroverted or outgoing or adventurous or talkative, etc., we look at them, or maybe you look at yourself, and you feel like this verse is in kind of direct confrontation with something that feels really much like me, and I've got to twist and get rid of so much of my personality to become pleasing to God. This is bad. Good news is, that's not what it's talking about. The phrase is in the context of submission to your own husband in the context of conduct that is respectful and pure. And verse 3 just touched on the pure, and now this is about the respectful. The inner person that is gentle and quiet is the opposite of harsh, demanding, and quarrelsome. Gentle, quiet, opposite of harsh, demanding, and quarrelsome unsubmissive and disrespectful, resistant. Gentle and quiet is just another way of saying submissive. The example of the Old Testament women that comes up right next there, the, the holy women of the past that makes it clear, they were beautiful like this. These Old Testament women were beautiful in this gentle and quiet spirit as they submitted to their husbands. Same thing. He's just talking about it in a little different way to help you kind of feel it, to describe the attitude 
Sarah, then the example used, she, she was with Abraham, her husband, not listed there, but her husband, she obeyed Abraham, it says in verse 6. It doesn't tell us when or how exactly, but she repeatedly called him Lord, which sounds worse now to us than back then. It's just saying, you know, you're, you're the guy in charge of the family. I acknowledge that. And she followed his lead, gentle and quiet in spirit. This is not saying you have to be mousy and silent. Boisterous can be godly. Confident and assertive and chatty and engaging. All of that. All kinds of different personality traits. Whatever it is that you are. It can all be godly and beautiful and wonderful. Just don't quarrel. Don't contend. God says not to. And if for a second you could drop in any number of Proverbs, can you drop in a couple of Proverbs there about quarreling? I mean, there are a bunch of Proverbs. Twice the Proverbs say, it is better to live on the corner of the roof than with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome wife. The constant dripping of rain and the quarreling of a wife are the same. That's not written to men. That's written to women. Saying this very same thing in different, maybe more pointed language. Why do you need a gentle and quiet spirit when living with your husband? Because that's what might win him. The other will drive him away to the roof, to the desert, to the golf course, anywhere but here. And the goal is to win him. So that's what we work on adorning. Not the external, the internal. And you have to work on it. You have to work on adorning it because it's hard. It is not natural to us. We're all people with our own ideas and our own ways. And that's especially challenging when the husband that you're quietly, respectfully submitting to doesn't treat you very well. This is hard. There's nothing easy here, but it's God's call on you in marriage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands in all respect and purity. It'll draw them to God. That's the first, the, the horizontal reason. You're in marriage on mission. And the second, the, the vertical reason is as you engage with this and as you work on adorning that, you're going to find, I can't just do it. This is hard. This is frankly near impossible. That draws him to God, and what you're going to find is that's going to draw you to God, too. And that leads to the second observation, which is much shorter. Submission to a husband comes from and feeds our hope in God. Submission to a husband comes from and feeds our hope in God. So we're going to approach this second point here by asking the question, 
why in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, why does it say that the gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight? That God appraises this kind of a heart attitude as very valuable. I can see why it's useful for drawing a person to him, and maybe he likes that, but, but why does it say that it's, it's precious to him? Why is that? The answer is in verse 5. Four, because... This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. In other words, this kind of heart is what characterizes hope in God, which God thinks is very precious. Think about hope in God. God thinks is most precious. If you think about chapter 1, verse 7, God thinks that's the most precious thing ever. Our faith, our hope, our dependence on him of greater worth than gold. Remember chapter 1, verse 7? God thinks about individual, about his people and says, the thing that's most important about you is your faith in me. That's what leads you to walk with me daily. That's what first brings you to me and then leads you to walk with me daily. And that, as we follow through chapter 1, as we already have, that's what actually carries you all the way with me, all the way through life, all the way to the inheritance that is coming, and then earns you great commendation from me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faith in you is the most important thing in you. That should be the most important thing in us to us. What's going on with my dependence on God? That should be the thing I'm most concerned about about me and you about you. And what this is talking about is hope in God is not just the commodity that we most need. It characterizes and comes from, it, the, the submission to a husband here characterizes and comes from the hope in God. They're, they're kind of like a cycle. They, they cycle, they amp each other up. Hope in God and submission to a husband. Which comes first? Well, the hope in God comes first. And then when that comes, for real, you, you read verse 1, you say, okay, I trust you. I'm, I'm here for that. I, I get it. And you step into that. It drives you towards, as it frees you to live vulnerably, surrendered to the world, surrendered to this other person right in front of you. Frees you up, and then you're going to step into it, and you're going to find challenge and hardship. In verse 6, you're going to find frightening things. Because the person that you're living with is a sinner. And half the times also a fool. That's the truth. This does not, this, this command does not exist in some fairy tale world where husbands are, are always good and always nice and always right. They are sinners and fools. And so when you step into that, hoping in God, you say, okay, God, I, I see what your, your plan here is. I see the command of me. I'm going to step into what you're going to find right away is, oh, my goodness. And you're going to find all kinds of things that are fearful. You're going to fear losing, losing your identity and losing your freedom and losing just your right to your own personal tastes and your own rights and your opportunities. 
You're going to fear being subsumed under his identity, and you're only going to be known in certain circles as his wife, not as your own individual person, who you are. People won't even know your name. You're going to fear ending up living in a city where you don't want to live, in a house that he likes. Forced to engage in social circles with people who are his friends and his workmates that you don't connect with and have to try to pretend to. Working a job that you don't want in a place where you never would have chosen. And forced to watch the one and only life that you've ever going to be given slip away as you age, living his agenda for your life. And I haven't even touched anything physical. That's assuming none of that. All of that is incredibly, at least, disappointing. Probably fearful. And often real. And you see that. You're going to step into it, obedient, hoping in God, and you're going to run right into all those realities and many more that I don't personally connect with because I'm not a woman and won't ever actually sit in those shoes, stand in those shoes. Maybe you know what it is for you. And you're going to look at that, and, and it's going to rise up the fear and the heartache. And there's going to be a strong temptation there to either contend with him if you possibly can, or to escape the checkout, to stand up or run. And then here's the call. Be subject to I can't just work on that. What do you do? Hope in God. Not in yourself, not in man, not in a man. Not hoping in him to change or hoping in the circumstances to improve. Hoping in God. That the fearful things remain, but you would not fear them because in your mind, what rises up and becomes most dominant is the one who judges justly and stands over all of this. Last week's passage. Jesus' model for us. And right next to that, what rises up is not just the one who judges justly against evil, but the one who judges justly for you and graces you his person, his beloved daughter, graces you now with the presence of his spirit day by day by day as he carries you home to the inheritance that he secured for you. That's the one you have to hope in. That's the only hope there is. That's enough. That's enough. He understands. I've never stood in your shoes, but he has. The Bible is sweet on this. It affirms that Jesus, though a man, was God who walked in human shoes and understood, understands all of what it's like to be human. Ironically, he understands what it's like to subject himself to men who treated him wickedly and took his life from him. He can identify with you and your fears. And he rose from the dead to set you free from them and to, to deliver to you certain hope. That does not erase the fearful things. It gives you power to not fear the fearful things. Notice verse 6 says, Do good and don't fear what's fearful. It is fearful. Don't fear it. How? 
by setting that aside and grabbing hold of the one who's trustworthy, hope in God. And that puts you in a spot where you give away your life living not for his identity with a lowercase h, but living for his identity with a capital H. Losing your life not to him, but to him. That makes all the difference. And actually, that's the path that all of us walk. It's just a little different path and a little different context. But it's the path we all walk, giving away our lives, hoping in God not fearing that which is fearful. So really, in fact, this is sort of a sermon, at least the last point here is sort of a sermon to all of us. If you're a single guy, this is about you. Because every one of us faces things that are fearful in life and you can't get rid of them. And if you're living trying to get rid of the fearful things, good luck. The only way to live is to not fear the fearful things by hoping in God who is for you, who walks with you, is carrying you in grace all the way home, and in the end will judge justly. That's the only way to live in submission to anybody. And that is grown in us as we live in submission to anybody. Submission comes from and drives, it cycles with, it feeds our hope in God. So, people of God, particularly sisters who are married, God's offer to you today is himself as your hope. It's a path forward into ministry mission, which is a useful and high calling to your husband and to all of those around who will watch and will say, I do not know how that woman stays with that guy. I don't know how she does it with him. Let me tell you how. Let me tell you the hope that is in me. It's, it's a call to mission in marriage. I need to say one more time at the end, I think. Maybe recourse should be considered for you. But here's God's offer. I'll be with you in the middle of trouble. Take him up on that and hope in God. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.